and welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we're going to be featuring the second part of my interview with Albert Evans of Contact Engine uh, about behavioural science and, and how it can be applied to the customer experience. Just want to do a little bit of a recap on, on how, how, you, how you engaged with Albert. Yeah, so Contact Engine, uh, a really interesting company, and they're a company we've been sort of talking to and, and featuring in our magazine, Customer Insight, a little bit for, for a couple of years now. They're in quite a busy space. So they're in this sort of space of kind of AI-driven automated customer contact, if you like. Right. What I find interesting about them is the the guy who set them up, Mark Smith, he's a really sort of charismatic, interesting guy, but he he's a strong believer in getting really smart people on board to do it well. So he gets, you know, uh, language experts to think about how people are using language. He gets psychologists on board. He gets behavioral scientists on board to, to think about how rather than focusing on the kind of tech computery side of things, although you know, they've got lots of experts in that field as well, but yes. also to focus on the human side of things. So, you know, it, it's it's thinking about the psychology of an automated interaction as well as the kind of technical back end of an automated interaction. Yes, and I think what the, what the listeners will get, um, probably a, a, a little bit of a health warning, it, it, it's a bit longer than our usual podcast um, in terms of the conversation you have with, with Albert. I think it's about four, 40 minutes. Yes. But you can really see the expertise, the detail, and the science that go behind this. And I think that's one of the things that really struck me um, about it. Yeah, I had a really good conversation with Albert. I really enjoyed it. And it's, I think it's interesting because, as you say, really, there's a lot of kind of detail there. And and I think, you know, it is the case that a lot, a lot of the time the devil is in the detail. It's, it's about testing the impact around the edges or the margins of kind of relatively what, what might seem like small tweaks to to language or, or dot, 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 other things. It, it's interesting as well when you start to look at uh, all, all the stuff you've done sort of holistically, um, all the stuff that's been done. Um, you realise just how much how much of a body of knowledge uh, you get, particularly in some of these very specific customer contexts. Mm. But I think. I think a lot of the time with what we do, the context, I tried to stress this in the articles, it's the most important thing. In the example with the, with the telco where the self-serve option was best, or rather we're, still, we, we're, we're, going, we're actually currently conducting some further analysis into down the line. If, uh, if, if, that, if, if we know the propensity to call is low, we know, we, we've, we know the, uh, the, there was less missed appointments, but whether the schedule was more successful, um, still some some things to look at there but um it's very important to to realize that there's also differences between your clients customers you could work with you know four different large organizations in the same industry and their customers maybe for whatever reason maybe there's some demographic difference maybe there's some like you know important individual difference that makes them identify with that particular brand and that's why they choose to buy from them there's going to be contextual difference and not every service or not rather not every nudge you think you've implemented elsewhere is going to work somewhere else and i think that goes back to the the replicability crisis um the the context is so important there are things that yeah are going to be sort of you know across the board true um we think but you've got to keep in mind who you're working with who are their customers you know what what do they need i think that's something that uh we we are getting into more and more. <laughs> I, I think that that point about context uh, and kind of who the customers are is really really important, and it's it's something that 
sometimes is kind of obvious. So I don't know. Let's say, for example, you were looking at what phone have people got in their pockets? Have they got an Apple phone or have they got an Android phone? Mm. And I suspect there's a whole load of values and attitudes and expectations of how things are going to work and that are bound up with that. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just, you know, I'm a teenager. I can't afford an Apple phone yet. So I've got an Android one. But, 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 you know, once it becomes a choice, probably you'd find out that there are some important differences in, in uh, what people are looking for. And there'll be lots of overlap, but, the, but there'll be differences. And I suspect that's probably generalizably true in pretty much. Surely the whole point of marketing is that we're trying to create brands which are distinctive and appeal to yeah. a certain type of customer with certain values in a certain way. And if that's the case, then surely that's going to transfer through to the customer experience um, and what those people want and how they're going to think and how they're going to respond to certain situations. That seems obvious to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something important to bear in mind when you're when you're a business that works with multiple clients and, and also uh, across multiple time zones, <laughs> because uh, we had some confusion uh, quite a while back. We were doing, we were doing some testing um, with like, say, if you greet someone by saying, all right, means a very different thing in the UK that doesn't the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that context of the customer, you have to take it into account when you're when, when you're working with multiple different groups. I imagine for like larger organisations as well. I'm, I'm, in fact, I know, I know this to be true. It, it will be the same within your different customer segments. You know, your your if you're a telco, your landline only customer base is probably quite different from your uh, super high <laughs> speed broadband uh, customer base. Um, maybe not every time, absolutely, but I imagine there's probably some sort of normal distribution, but there, there's definitely going to be significant differences and you have to take that in mind um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're communicating. Yeah, and my view has always been with, I'm a bit sceptical about segmentation because I think what people tend to do is is a bit clumsy and it just puts people into a box and i don't mm. think that's necessarily very helpful but if you if you understand that these differences are there then that then you can factor that in when you're designing so i think you know the mistake for me is to assume you know you know because someone is a 25 year old man or they're a 65 year old woman that you know what they want you don't mm. yeah um, you have to ask right you exactly. have to and you exactly. have to test so like one way to do that is by experimenting with the mode of communication. So like with a concept engine, we said we, we use voice, email and, and SMS. We also do web chat and, and web forms as well. There, I, I would imagine, I would hypothesize, if you like, there would be, there, there's a distinct difference in the take up of those modes um, across different demographics. And uh, depending on who you're communicating with and why, there's going to be one that's most effective. Now we don't, we rarely um, segment, as you say, we rarely segment communications on that. What we tend to do is, uh, and I'll, I'll, I think this is gen- generally pretty good advice, to, to attempt multiple routes of communication because it, it kind of bypasses that that potential barrier, you know, and, and, and we tend to, once someone engages on a, on a given mode of communication, we'll try to stick with that because it, it, it can be useful. There are times when, when that's not the best choice. There are times when, you know, you might then hit a critical juncture. Maybe you want to go back to all the modes. Um, and, and that's very important, but you, you have to sort of make those decisions based on need and, and, uh, and what's the best customer experience. I think personally, I'd, I'd rather, um, because I probably will have forgotten uh, my appointment, uh, that someone attempts all methods to reach me the day before um, than, uh, than, than just sticking to one. So, uh, and I think um, the key thing for me is doing the switching gracefully. 
Um, yeah. Because you're absolutely right, depending on the person and what the interaction is and, you know, what it's about, the best mode for doing that can can differ from day to day even, like, like, and, mm-hmm. and, but also from, you know, across different occasions. And it's not in a way that's totally unpredictable necessarily. There'll, there'll be commonalities to that. Um, so, for example, we do a lot of work in insurance, for example. And, and one of the things we, we've seen quite often is that People are very happy self-serving for kind of change of address and stuff like that. But when it comes to making a claim, they're probably much more likely to want to pick up the phone and talk to someone because, you know, I'm stuck next to the M1 on the hard shoulder. I want to talk to someone now. Um, so I think that those kind of understanding this, you know, again, the context and how that interacts with the context for the person as well um, is really important to get that those choices about the experience right. And it will vary for the individual. Yeah. So and one of the things I wanted to pick up from the last podcast was we were talking about testing and kind of the, you know, the science bit, I suppose, of behavioral science is not just relying on judgment and history, but actually saying, well, well, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, we're trying to persuade someone to pay an overdue bill. And mm-hmm. we could try a whole load of different messaging for that. We could be really threatening and say, you know, well, we're going to, call in a bailiff if you don't pay your bill or we could try different sort of um behavioral science nudges like oh well most people pay their bill on time or you know social norms and all that sort of thing or dot 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 there's a whole different ways load of ways you could approach that messaging and then we can go about testing that and see what works best but i think this is what i want to get into a bit bit more detail with you about is actually running those tests and experiments how do you decide what to test? How do you know you've got a, you know, enough of a statistically significant sample um, that it's a, a meaningful result? And mm. is these are a lot of questions there. And is there a danger of getting so addicted to testing, like Google famously do, that you kind of you kind of never stop? You're always looking for that eighteenth of a percent uplift, where actually maybe we've we've got good enough now. Uh, one way to think about this is. 80% of the work normally, uh, 80% of the benefit normally comes from 20% of the effort. And to get that extra 20%, you could be looking at a lot of effort. And I, I, I think that is also exponential. So the next 10% maybe takes, you know, the next 40% effort, then it's going to quickly spiral. So first things first, you need to have an understanding of what your measurements of success are. Now, if, you, if you're doing this sort of internally, that's, that's going to be very easy because you 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 know what your objectives are and uh, you know, that's all sort of within your remit i think when you're working with a client it can be slightly uh slightly more difficult because uh, on the one hand you 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 have what maybe your kpis are as someone who's delivering a service but you don't have the full picture necessarily and so i think from from the get-go it's very important to try and acquire as much uh, as many flags and markers of success or failure as you can and secure those early. The next piece to that is that, you know, like all things in, uh, in, in, in the business world today, I suppose you want to be quite agile with this. You, you want to you come up with a, uh, some, some testing that perhaps at first looks a little rudimentary, right? You, you, you're looking for what, what can tell us immediately if this is, if, if this is uh, good or bad, right? And then you build on that. So, you could be looking at, say, uh, for us, it's, it, it's our first element of, you know, our first red flags, if you like, are going to be something like, okay, is, are we getting a response at all? You know, so is there engagement? Once we know if there's engagement, 
we can then start, you know, going and, and a few other metrics, contact rate, that sort of thing. Um, we start filtering down and we're getting closer to our sort of business KPIs and we're saying, okay, well, was this journey successful? Hopefully, um, <laughs> our people, uh, our team and customer success have worked very well with our clients to secure those different, uh, different metrics. Then you get to the piece where how scientific does this need to get? Well, when you get to the point of, you know, calculating power of samples and, you know, uh, looking at whether or not you're hitting a certain p-value, you're probably uh, flying a bit too close to the sun. I think that for most of your business benefit is going to come from taking a scientific approach to understanding the problem. There's a time and place for, you know, advanced uh, advanced statistics, you know, trying to identify correlations maybe between a, in, in a large customer data set between who are the most you know, uh, at-risk groups and that sort of thing. If there's particular pain points or if, if, the, if the end result is, is particularly detrimental, if you like, to the, the success of the business. But I mean, I think in, in most cases, you're going to get your, the, the vast majority of your benefit from identifying what the measurements of success are, having a very specific intervention, and then performing some analysis that most people could do. You don't need a, a data science team to, to, to identify whether or not one group has, um, you know, a significantly better customer journey or a successful customer journey than, uh, uh, than another. Perhaps you need a, uh, perhaps you do need that if you want to get into the, the, some real nuts and bolts of it and, and claw back that 1%. But I think at that point, you're probably reaching diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. Then again, though, you do bring up sample. And so <laughs> sample is, is, uh, is important. My, my advice uh, for people that were, were looking at scaling uh, an intervention like this would be to start small and get larger. You can start with a very small segment and test the waters uh, and perhaps bring that up until you feel like you've got um, something that's more representative. But I, I, think it, I think it depends on, on the context of this journey, right? It's possible that you may never reach a powerful sample. You know, I mean, that's highly probable depending on the journey. You could have a journey where... Perhaps you're, perhaps you're communicating on some very, uh, you know, expensive products or, or whatever, and, you, and you've got a sample that's sort of like 20, 30, uh, I don't know, a week or something like that. You're never going to hit the threshold for scientific rigor, and you just have to accept that. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's the, that's the soundest way to think about this. What you are going to hit is uh, sort of the threshold for have I, have I done what is reasonably practicable to deliver a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down on whether or not this in- intervention has worked? Absolutely. Because I think most of the time you're going to see, you know, if there's, if there's marginal difference, if you run an A-B test and you get like a 0.5% difference in response rate, 0.1% difference in misappointment rate, what you've, you've proven something. It's just the null. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, That's exactly I'd be okay with you. that. <laughs> glad you said that because I think a lot of the write-ups and the, and the presentations you see at conferences about this kind of behavioral science testing that's exactly my read of it I, I go, like you're presenting this as a successful test i i'm reading this as a, a test that proves you've made no difference between these two outcomes because it is you know a fractional difference so i think unless unless the uplift is significant for the business you have learned something you've done science you've proved that it makes no odds this this particular you know intervention to use your term it doesn't make any difference um that doesn't mean there isn't one that might but that one doesn't 
I feel like as well when you start once if you're doing if you increase the size of your sample right and then you see a small uh, you start seeing a small difference let's say for example it's a it's a it's a successful booking or or, or um, a successful sale or whatever you know and you see that there's a point one difference okay uh, between these two things now that point one difference may be a huge uplift in sales volume on aggregate so what i think then the question is is let's explore that further and that's part of the scientific method is to say right we have made some progress we understand that there is something potentially to be gained here let's look into this difference further and see if we can extrapolate on it is there more to be had here you know and that's how you know this i think one of the issues i suppose people think about this sort of thing is that whilst the customer a person's customer journey ends your business's customer journey doesn't. You're making, you're having customer journeys all the time. It never stops, hopefully. So you can be in a, you can have, you know, a process of iterative improvement. And that's what we do. So if we see, you know, we, we're, we're trying, so we're trying to reduce this propensity to call whatever. Um, we see a, a small uplift and the sample is is powerful enough. And we say, okay, let's let's look into that more. Let's, let's, uh, let's dive into that piece. Let's run the test with that thing and see if we can get more differences and or if we can maintain that you know there's all different ways to to assess whether or not your your uh interventions or your your, your nudges if you like are effective uh, over time and time perhaps is the is the biggest tell if you run it for two or three months and you've got a, a 0.4 percent difference in in uptake or, or success whatever you know that you've got something that might be slightly more effective there and there's something to look into. I think that's the key thing for me is not sort of blindly iterating based on the numbers, but understanding why. So yeah. why has this worked better? What does that tell us about the way customers are making decisions? And therefore, what else could we do to tap into that same kind of mechanism? That sort of understanding of cause and effect rather than, so it's not 100% empirical, it's empiricism tied to understanding of cause and effect that's where that's to me what science is yeah i mean i think one of the things in you know in, in business and, and with customer journeys is you move quicker so like you know your analysis isn't going to take as long as if someone's doing a some sort of you know giant meta-analysis in, in academia right and you don't have as many hoops to jump through so you have the ability to remain agile, make small iterative improvements, and then and, and then try and chase the why. Why is it why is it working? And particularly if you've got a, if you're implementing this across the business. So I mean, we have the benefit of working with a load of different types of clients, right? A load of different types of journeys. So we might see some things which hold for everybody. Like we know that um, if we haven't contacted someone after four attempts, we're probably not going to get them after ten, right? That's just you know just how it is. There are things like that that you you know, but then you 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 are constantly trying to do hypothesizing, right? To be sort of overly scientific, you're constantly saying, right, well, this works here. Let's test if it works there, right? Why why is that? What 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 do these what do these different things share? You know, can we can we develop something that that does the same thing elsewhere? <laughs> you know, um, I think if you've got if if you're sort of if this is an internal thing, then that's maybe an avenue for growth in terms of identifying you know more success can you uh, initiate a similar test somewhere else you know um and what can you learn from that why does it work in that setting and in, in terms of kind of having a, a sort of consistent approach you know place to look for kind of inspiration uh, and a framework maybe and we, we talked in the last episode about 
what I mentioned in passing, Mindspace, um, which is probably, from, to my mind, probably the most famous kind of kind of nudge behavioral insights um, framework. Um, so that's something, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but that, that was something that the behavioral insights team uh, came up with well, probably 10 years ago now. It's only a while ago mm-hmm. now. And, it, it, and you know, they've, they've sort of changed who they are a little bit and things like that. But it's still a quite a commonly used framework because it gives you a little mnemonic of kind of different ways to go about influencing uh, decisions. But there are other frameworks out there. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what, you know, what, where do you turn to for sort of inspiration for frameworks for for ways of thinking about how to approach this? Interesting question. So I suppose part of that is tied into like the, the way we build journeys at Contact Engine. So it's, it's, a, it's a process which starts, you know, in sales with a, where, where they have uh, one, one sort of mindset understanding uh, how these solutions can solve problems for people, uh, for clients, moves into sort of customer success, which is very much um, we're looking at journey linguistics and, and, and that sort of thing. How can we, uh, how can we tailor the journey best in, in this use case? Um, and that tends to be quite individual and then moves into sort of more our, my, my team's, uh, our team's area of expertise, which is more technical, where we're looking at more sort of technical elements of the, of the journey, uh, the build and maintenance, and, and, and then in the future, data analysis of, of those journeys. I suppose if, in terms of a framework, uh, we have a lot of internal knowledge sharing. And I think uh, really it might be quite surprising, I suppose, because I think part of this framework is built into the product. So because of the way the product works, a lot of these um, ideas evolved over time to just become embedded into how the product actually works. You know, the way that we 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 instigate keywords, the way that we we uh, I hate to use the word prime, but it kind of is true. We prime people uh, to to respond in certain ways, given you know whatever the the goal of the journey is. All of that conversational design. Um, I'd say I'd, I'd say there isn't one framework. It's a it's like a a marriage between. The way the product works, which does a lot of this implicitly, plus sort of the continuous attempts to problem solve for the client by the customer success team, who are looking at very much um, these problems in a, in a whole host of different ways. I wouldn't say there's one framework that's used. I think that if there was a framework, it'd be contact engine. <laughs> you know, um, we share a lot of knowledge, so we we have a we have sort of extensive wiki where we uh internal wiki where we we share a lot of um previous success uh information on ab tests that sort of thing mm. i think if there's uh yeah but no no, uh, no innate framework where someone uh walks through before a, a journey goes live i think we had we had up until very recently a, a journey in linguistics team where that was that was their position i know they use like the uh they they to prompt questions and, and, and gather responses. I use like the Barbara Mendo principle quite a lot, um, uh, question, situation, complication. But very much it's, uh, I, suppo- I suppose, um, apart from uh, any academic framework necessarily, it's um, uh, those are kind of just taken into account and implicit to the product. Those are kind of, those kind of principles of, you know, mm-hmm. thinking of like system one, uh, uh, system two kind of implicit to how the product works. I wanted to pick up on your sort of nervousness around the word priming, mm. uh, because I mean, one of the things we mentioned in the, in the first episode was the kind of replication crisis in in psychology. And 
I know Daniel Kahneman has kind of gone on the record to say, basically, thinking fast and slow, uh, I'm very proud of it, but ignore chapter four, because uh, it turns out that it's all rubbish. Um, which And chapter four is basically the one about priming. Mm. And I think that's, of all the kind of the ideas in behavioural economics that probably people's intuition rebelled against, the priming studies were probably some of the ones we mostly thought, nah. Mm. So, for example, if you're primed with a load of words about old age versus not old age do you walk down the corridor outside slower or not interesting it's studies that it hasn't replicated <laughs> so, yeah and, and, it, and, and like you're in i often find this right? your instinct this is kind of relevant to what's talking about but your instincts about does that seem plausible that seems that seems a bit unlikely and it turns out well it, it certainly hasn't been replicated let's put it that way Part of when when I think about this, now, I, I suppose it it comes down to more of that like the simplest expression of that idea is if you I think is if if you present someone with something, it may uh, it, it it it's influencing their choice in some way, and I think it's definitely not what they were talking about. <laughs> to be honest, it's yeah. there's it, it's definitely not. I mean, if you if you if you suggest to someone that you can respond in a certain way, I think people see that it, it's more of like a it's more of informed than prime. Our brains are predictive, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So if I say, I don't know, uh, red, white, and, what are you going to say? Blue. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, that could have been anything. Why not red, white, and purple? Mm. Why not red, white, and brown? But because it's a pattern and you, you recognise the pattern and your brain goes, oh, that's a pattern I recognise and it fills in the you know right answer. And I think to a lot of extent, to, to a large extent, right, that's really what we're talking about with priming is like setting people up to succeed or fail because we're setting their brains off in a certain direction and if that direction is going to help them make the right choice then that helps the set the, the experience and if it leads them down the wrong choice then it hurts the experience you see this sometimes on websites where they'll flip around the buttons unexpectedly and then people loads of people will click on the wrong button but because they've been trained to click in that place and suddenly it moves and that um well, that's yeah, well, what do you think was going to happen? That's part of the. Um, I, I tried to write a little bit about this because, and when I say that, you know, this this kind of this way of doing stuff is embedded in the product, kind of relates to that, which is that your if your product is moving people through a customer journey with a certain goal in mind, then you're going to try and do things like uh, if, if you look at like cognitive load theory, you've got different types of cognitive load. One of those is germane load, which is like the schema, like mental, what mental schema do you develop in order to sort of pass through decision problems and, uh, and everything is a decision problem you know and that's kind of that's one way i think in which we we do that so like it, it, you can leverage technology to do that as you say you know moving moving buttons that's because people have developed that very and very quickly the schema to to move through that without thinking for us we do something similar in a much less nefarious way we will offer say what the what what we think are the most relevant keywords as part of the message most people's phones will identify those as potential responses and people get very quickly used to replying in such a way that makes it seamless they see those words they see their phone suggested it they do it the first time they confirm they understand the next time they see the message even if not prompted they might reply confirm or, or, or whatever you know depending on what it's changed or wrong address whatever and these, this happens very quickly. It's actually really interesting because if you introduce these sort of keywords early on in the journey and then you take them away, and you're just like, there's no thanks wrong. You know, so we've already said to the customer, you can reply this, this, and this if there's a problem. You'd expect to just get, you know, 
the vast majority of your responses in to be quite verbose and, and, and have to rely on, on, on the AI to understand what they are. But um, interestingly, you know, people will maintain the same schematic of, of how they answer the question initially. How were they, how was it suggested to them? People, people embed that information very quickly. Now, which is, which is crazy really. But I mean, it makes sense because we, we're, the, the things we do tend to be, uh, <laughs> tend to be uh, probabilistically driven and, and repetitive. <laughs> yeah, we're all Bayesians, as someone said once, I think. But yeah, our brains are all Bayesian. Mm. But um, one of the things that I was interested there when you were talking about um, our mental schemas and AI, I remember quite a few years ago now, we, we did some work on artificial intelligence and the future of it in, in customer experience. And I was interviewing um, a professor at Sheffield University, and she was saying that one of the things they're really struggling with is they were training all the the models on natural language and then when when people realize they're speaking to a computer they change the way they speak because the schema says oh i must talk like a robot mm. now so they change the words they use the sort of structure of the sentences and they're no longer talking like natural language that all the models have been trained on which i think is a good example of, of what you're talking about that the, if the schema doesn't line up with the reality then things often go a bit wrong. It's, no, it's, it's interesting actually because we uh, we spend a lot of time looking at responses and and you know what 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 shape they are, and uh, people te people will respond very well with keywords and stuff. But also, if you if you if we say just let us know what the problem is, people people can uh, you know lucky for us we understand it. You know we can route them to where they need to be uh, with journey level sort of intents. But uh, it's interesting because they will respond in very like conversational ways. You know, and uh, I think uh, we we it's been a, a topic. There's, there's some great uh, interviews with uh, with Mark Smith and Ewan. Um, that's Mark's the CEO of Contact Engine, and uh, Ewan is uh, uh, the director of artificial intelligence. They, they've talked to a lot about sort of the uncanny valley, right? And and how um you know when it, it, once you know everything that something's not human, it seems very eerie, you know, um, which which is a really interesting idea. But I'd say, uh, I'd say in our use case, I think I'd be, I'd be interested to know more. This is one of the things that I always want to know. I would love to be able to speak more to the, to the customer and understand, you know, did, did you feel eeriness, you know, once you know, you know, because people will, people will respond very, I suppose one example of this is if they respond and they go through the journey, everything's going very well, blah, blah, blah. We've understood everything they've said. And maybe at one point they say something like, oh, I've got builders on the roof in, in, a, in a week. So can we, can we do something when I'm back from Barbados? Right, some real gibberish, right? <laughs> um, and we're like, oh, we're not sure what you meant there. Perhaps it'd be interesting for us to see if, there's, if, if we can spot any of that immediate behavior change, you know, because I think uh, at that point we will then have been saying, oh, actually, we didn't, maybe we didn't get that. Can you uh, come back with something that's like, you know, X, Y, or Z? If, if there was any severe change to the dynamic of the conversation, that would be quite interesting. Um, maybe that's some, mm, something we could that explore. Would be <laughs> We're all probably getting a bit more used to having a conversational uh, interaction with 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 robots. Broadly, you know, we, we all, well, we don't all, but look, look, many people have Alexa or, uh, you know, a voice assistant on their phone. I, I won't say its name because it will <laughs> start talking to me. Um, but though... And I guess those are training us that actually a natural language approach does work now where, you know, we don't have to be weird and artificial. We can be 
natural and actually it's going to work better if we are fairly natural it's got to be cultural isn't it i mean like it's a it's a it's a it's a total shift in the in the paradigm of, of you know like human robot relationships are they are they a thing you know can they exist like that? <laughs> yeah um the 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 way that uh people operate with with, with non-human things yeah I, I feel like people are definitely getting more used to it i do wonder if uh, there's a a famous acronym for especially in psychological research you know most research is weird so it's it's white european industrialized rich developed right um something to that effect is it just that you know a lot of our previous research on, on the understanding of uncanny valley was it just was it just you know focused on on maybe uh, or rather a uh, a product of its time perhaps now the same research wouldn't be repeatable Re replicability crisis all over again um but i'd, I'd be very interested to to see that uh, some sort of like you know the trend over time uh, that's definitely something someone's got to do that is a really interesting topic <laughs> isn't it and i think i mean it, the idea of of yeah weird research in in um well not just in psychology but in in in, in everything yeah. really you know in our knowledge about humans i think it's a really big problem i mean it's this is, I mean, this is not a topic for today because it's a whole another subject. But I'm a big fan of Invisible Women, um, the book by Carolyn Credo Perez, for example, which and she really talks about how the lack of data about women, you know, the idea of default male mm. in all essentially design, medical research, psychological research, like every facet of life, is really damaging for everyone, particularly for women, but but for for all of us, you know, we we all lose out by not understanding the sort of real diversity of experience and and even just things as simple as shape and size yeah. you, know? Uh, you know not understanding you know seat belts work less well for women than they work for men mm. um because they were designed around male crash test dummies and that's kind of ridiculous I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's almost un unfathomable but it's still true and then you start thinking about yeah sort of culture different ethnic origin yeah. you know all, how those things might start to impact on the way people respond to different kind of contexts and you know the choice architectures that you've talked about it's fascinating but the more you think about it the more you become aware of what we probably don't know yet yeah i think it it, it really uh, it's one of the many examples and it's kind of why like, like i think people should feel encouraged to try and do this sort of behavioral science stuff in their business you know in their customer journey because the truth is there's a there's a lot of great academic information out a lot of interesting stuff but you're the closest person to your customers you, you have that information you you, you can uh you, you have the power to go and actually gather information that is perhaps perhaps it's not going to have the explanatory power to talk about the entire human race you know but my, it will be very specific to your customers and um uh, and, and i think that's important to not get hung up on you know is is it is it academic enough and stuff like that? because as you say there are these problems that exist in academia, the, the replicability, the fact that research is weird. The psychology studies we've been talking about, most of them are based on 50 psychology students in a fairly posh Western university. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons why it, it, there is such a problem. Um, I, I, I had a lecturer at uni at UCL and he, he uh, was talking about the crisis itself and how uh, quite, I mean, quite not not to throw shade on the whole subject of psychologists. Plenty of excellent psychologists, you know, um, and, and economists for that matter. But where it, p hacking, you know, so if you're familiar with academic research and what a p value is, um, for those that might not know, it's uh, it's the probability um, that your your evidence is your your uh, findings are false, right? Um, the probably the, the, the null hypothesis that nothing happened <laughs> is true. 
And in academia, it's common to get that to 5%, uh, 0.5. So um, uh, 0.05, excuse me. Um, people will do a lot of different things to get up below that value. And that begs some serious questions. And I think that's part of that. That is part of the, the replicability crisis. But, you know, on a greater note, as you say, if all your students are the same, relatively speaking, you're probably not going to have the diversity of thought required to uh, properly understand decision making every time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the um, the general crisis in there's a, a brilliant paper for anyone who's interested in this kind of the problems with academia. Um, called why most published research findings are false um which i think is it's it's not i don't quite go along with it but i think it's really worth reading because it'll talk about yeah p hacking it'll talk about the file draw problem all all these kind of issues that affect science and what you know what we know particularly perhaps social science what we know about how people work but i think um, to on a slightly more upbeat (laughs) albert uh, i think as you were saying in a lot of ways what it means is that we in organizations are in a brilliant position to and you you sort of talk through this over the two episodes you know, start with that kind of qualitative approach understanding what the problems are what the pain points are what do we need to try and do something about build measures that will speak to those you know what is it we're trying to get more of or less of and then run experiments to find out what are the things we can do in this customer experience that will give us more of the stuff we want and less of the stuff we don't want and if you do those things you're a scientist you know, you're contributing new knowledge to the world in a way that's at least as legitimate as what you know, sort of published, you know, psychology papers are, are doing. Yeah, totally. I, I, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you don't need that. There is a there is a level to which your analysis goes from being practical and accurate, which is, you know, not necessarily an easy task, depending on what you're looking at, to the point where it becomes to the rigor of you know, an academic piece of research, but your business benefit between those two things is probably marginal. And so it's just, you know, expend the effort where it's going to give you the, the best return. And, uh, and you know, that's just being purely, you know, quite frank about it. But it's also the case that your effort spent may perhaps getting that last percentage, you know, where maybe 40% of your effort is going. You could be spending that effort somewhere else to, to perhaps gather uh, a, quite a large and significant um, improvement elsewhere in your customer journey or, 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 or organization, whatever, you know, and then perhaps you can collect those two findings. And, and that's, I, I think, part of, it's part of being agile, right? And, and just having a, having like a, a, a lean model for these sort of things. I think it just makes more sense. And that's at least the, the way that we normally do things. Sometimes we do some, uh, when, uh, if we go to our AI such uh, research, uh, department if you'd like um well maybe we'll go into some greater statistical um depth um but there's normally a very good reason for that yeah no, i totally agree i think listeners can't see me nodding but i always nodding my head off when you were talking about you know getting 80 percent of the way there with kind of 20 percent of the effort and that's i think that's totally true i think you're looking for those big easy wins that make a lot of difference you know what's the next biggest thing that i could do to make this experience work better for customers mm-hmm. and if you've got a metric that proves it and you show and you show that uplift, then brilliant. Yeah, that's that's science, but it's also good business, and it's creating that kind of return on investment case. And that's just really why you're not doing that. That that's call it behavioural science, call it 
whatever you like that's just making things better for customers and making things better for the business as well yeah, it feels it feels like common sense but it's only common sense when you realize you're not doing it <laughs> so it's uh it's really easy i think to uh to sort of you know scratch your head and then throw things at the wall until something sticks but if uh if if you take a step a step back and look at things from more of like a you know okay what say if we're going to be scientific about what's the smallest thing i could change that might give me a, a better customer journey a more more success rate whatever that thing is start there that's an that that will be an easy change to make it'll be an easy change to assess and you can work back from there or up rather one of the things i've noticed over the years is so often if you do customer research or if you do workshops with with staff or ideally probably a bit both you almost always turn up with something where everyone goes well why are we not doing that <laughs> yeah let, let's do that let's start doing that tomorrow um and i think that's a, that's exactly what you're talking about really like what is the, the the change we could do tomorrow that will make a difference and let's measure how much difference it yeah makes. totally absolutely i mean the there is sort of a, another layer as well which is what what can you leverage to make to make those uh, interventions or nudges uh, more effective. So for us, like you, you know, we, we have we, we've got the AI capability. We can we can we can do stuff with that. So we have a proactive conversation. We can, depending on if we're giving people the option of of, of choice keywords or you know tell us anything you want, um, we can under, interpret and understand those responses. I think for people to try and understand what's practical within their business, within their sort of you know technological remit. To, to to work there i feel like it because it seems like it's all well and good for someone to say oh well you know just build a natural language processing ai and get to, to do this that and the other but that that would be probably if you were just starting off expending a lot of effort for uh, a, lot, a lot of heartache at first you know it takes a long time to come to fruition and even us like you know the the, the way that we, we manage our conversations a, a huge part of the intervention if you like can be from the linguistics trying to direct someone along, along a certain route within that sort of AI framework, you know, we'd like to keep people in the framework as opposed to outside of it. And that's an, another part of, you know, nudging someone along based on what technology is available. You know, so that's an, another sort of piece to that, I'd say, to, to think about. I think that's definitely true that, you know, it is, it is hard to build a really good AI doing proactive outbound conversational um, automation from scratch. But I don't think you necessarily need to. And I think one of my beliefs is that it, you can sort of sketch and prototype experience before you have to build it in a lot of cases. And so if you think that might be the solution, we'll get people to do it in the short term. See if it works. If it's working, right, let, let's bit by bit replace the people with AI when it works. Um, if we can build a business case for yeah, it. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, for in, from 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 our perspective, we know the challenges that come from trying to make these sort of adjustments and incorporate something like that for a client. Um, I, I think when I talk about AI, it's because very much my my lens is focused on how this how this kind of customer journey works. But I think it's important to think about your whatever technology you're using uh, as uh, you know in your customer journey. If, if you're the business think about what you've got and how you can leverage that so it could be that you know you've got some excellent um email capability maybe you've got some uh, you know great web devs maybe you can you can start working with them to to sort of create that choice structure within within an email maybe it's maybe you've got some uh highly effective call rooming for your uh for your call center whatever uh there are there are options um i think for people 
to try implementing some of this um, with what they've got. Well, I'm just a bit conscious of time, Albert. So yeah, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. So thank you very much for that. Um, I've once again really enjoyed talking to you about, uh, talking to you about all this stuff. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this as well. So again, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. I've, in, I've enjoyed the conversation, Stephen. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's been great to, to talk at such length about some of this. Um, normally, normally people, uh, you know, are turning off, running away uh, if I hit full stride. So yes, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Brilliant. Thanks, Albert. Okay, so that was really, really interesting, that. In terms of the conversation that you had with Albert there, Stephen, what do you think the main lesson, the main takeout um, is for, for the customer satisfaction listener, strategist? Yeah, interest? that's interesting. I think for me, there's probably probably two things that you know, so we in the world of customer experience and insight can, can really learn from behavioural science. And the first, I guess, is just that, the very basic principle that you know mo most human decisions are to a large extent driven by kind of subconscious or unconscious factors. You know, we're lazy. We try and we, and, and we let our brains make automatic decisions um, when we can, and that is often driven by things that are, are not obvious and, and prone to biases and and yeah. using heuristics and all these things that we learn from behavioral science. And, and I think the second thing is that to and therefore to understand whether a customer experience is working as well as it could do, you have to test. And yeah. um, so it, it, it might seem funny for a research company to say that because surely we can go and ask people and, but asking people only gets you so far. You have to test things, uh, particularly those more subtle subconscious things to understand the impact they're going to have. And uh, test accurately and test that accurately. I think one of the things that came out to me was the sort of the small differences that you can then investigate further and further and uh, and further and and there was such a sort of science a science behind it there definitely is yeah and i always say to people you know if, as soon as you set up an experiment and find out what whether you know thing a or thing b works better you know go, go and buy yourself a white coat <laughs> you're doing science it's exactly the same on questionnaires and feedback isn't it just let's ask the question see what it says and then we'll take it from there it, it, it's exactly the same as that. Uh, have you got any more um, interviews lined up with, with, with anyone for future podcasts? Uh, none actually fully, totally lined up. I can tell you about there's a couple in the works. So we, we do want to do some more interviews. And, and I've got a couple of irons in the fire that are not quite the head button down yet. But yeah, I hope certainly hoping to do some more. OK, well, thanks very much for the interview. And thanks to Albert for his time as well. Brilliant. Thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, if you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, as always, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at TLFresearch.com.